In this true crime episode, we are going to dive into a brutal double homicide in a city known for its wine, not its crime. On Halloween night of 2004 in Napa, California, an unknown killer broke into the home of three young women, and only one lived to talk about it. The murders turned the city upside down in an instant, but no one was prepared to find out who the killer was. The most unlikely suspect right under their noses. No criminal record, no aggressive behavior, just a regular person with intimate ties to the victim. This is a jarring case in one of the most beautiful parts of the country, Napa Valley, California. It's known for its wineries and vineyards, and tourists often flock here to experience all it has to offer. Napa Valley is also ranked as one of America's top 100 best places to live, which is why what happened on Halloween night in 2004 sent shockwaves through the town and even across the world. The scene takes place on Dorset Street, not far from downtown Napa, and described by the three girls that live there as the perfect place to live. Originally, there were only two roommates, both from the local area. Adrian and Sonia, an engineer, and Laura Mianza, a volleyball coach at a local college. They would eventually form a trio when Southern Belle Leslie Mazzara relocated from South Carolina after a rocky breakup with a boyfriend. At the time, Leslie was working at the Coppola Winery, operated by Francis Ford Coppola, the director of The Godfather. On Halloween night, the girls finished handing out candy, hung out with friends for a bit, but called it an early night and were in bed by 11 p.m. A few hours later, around 1 a.m., Lauren was awakened by loud banging and glass breaking from above her room, where the two other girls' rooms were. She sat up in bed, still groggy, but immediately felt something was wrong. She was right. A loud scream tore through the house as she hopped out of bed. She opened her door and stood in the doorway, trying to figure out what was going on. She heard him before she saw him, loud, fast footsteps scrambling down the stairs. He was running right at her. Lauren took off out the back door and into the backyard. She stood there waiting for him to attack her, but the prowler left back out the way he came, through a first floor window. Lauren waited until she felt sure he was gone, then apprehensively went back into the house and up the stairs to see Leslie and Adrian. She got to Leslie's room, but she wasn't in there. She pushed Adrian's door open, and she could have never prepared herself for what she was about to see. Both of the girls were in Adrian's bed and bleeding profusely from the multiple stab wounds. Leslie in a pool of blood and Adrian barely breathing, clinging to life. As she turned to run and call 911, Lauren slipped. It was in a pool of her own roommate's blood. This made this horrible experience even more real now. When paramedics arrived, they rushed to save Adrian, but the damage was done. Both women were pronounced dead on the scene, and word quickly spread about what happened to the girls that lived on Dorset Street. In Michigan, Leslie's mother was awakened and notified by police, 
and a world away in Australia, Adrian's mother would field the life-changing phone call. Both mothers were devastated and made plans to get their daughters, all the while wondering who could have wanted to kill their sweet daughters. Close friends and neighbors on their quiet street were all wondering the same thing. Why did this happen? Was this a targeted or random attack? No one knew. When a suspect wasn't picked up immediately, the town was on pins and needles. Napa hadn't seen a homicide in over two years. Of course, the rumors started to swirl and one of the more popular ones was that the girls were involved in drugs and owed someone money. Another favorite was that since Leslie worked at a winery owned by Francis Ford Coppola, he might have wronged the mafia and the girls were collateral damage. Investigators quickly sifted through the rumor mill and got down to business on tracking down the killer. Police scoured the crime scene and found cigarette butts outside the house. Knowing none of the girls smoked, they thought this was a major clue. Also, the type of cigarette was Turkish Golds, a variation of Camels, and they hadn't been on the market for very long. They kept this clue to themselves. For now, some speculated that the killer might have planted the butts there to throw off the detectives, since they were in plain sight. CSI also found blood at the scene that didn't match Adrian or Leslie's. The killer must have been injured during the attack. However, any evidence involving DNA would take time. Police were all but certain this was a planned attack. They felt the killer had knowledge of who slept where in the home as he slipped by Lauren's first floor bedroom and up the stairs. He wasn't after her. They also think that Leslie was most likely the intended target, as evidence indicated she was stabbed first and most viciously. From what they can gather, it appears that Leslie was attacked first while she was sleeping and survives the initial onslaught. She gets out of bed and is able to get out of her room. Now, either Leslie runs into Adrian's room or Adrian hears the attack happening and goes to see what is going on. And once noticing, she jumps in to help her friend, most likely the latter because Adrian was a scrappy survivor. She defied the odds when she survived a near fatal car crash at the age of 16. The crash left her with a small brain injury, but she pushed through, eventually earning a scholarship to California Polytechnic State University where she would become an engineer. Nevertheless, the intruder was too powerful for the injured woman who he left to die together in Adrian's bedroom. Investigators poured through the lives of these women. Everyone they could think of was interviewed. Friends racked their brains to remember any detail that might help lead to their killer. Lily Prudhomme, a mutual friend of all three women, but Adrian's best friend was interviewed and said she couldn't think of anyone that would want to do something like this to either girl. All of their close friends felt the same way. When investigators went through the life of Leslie Mazera, it didn't take long to recognize that she had many admirers. She was of course beautiful, a beauty queen who competed for the title of Miss South Carolina. She received attention wherever she went. A close friend of Leslie described her as a heartbreaker but an unintentional one. She made everyone feel like he or she was Leslie's best friend. After breaking up with one boyfriend, he proceeded to make a webpage tribute to her. One guy bought her a car. Another bought her luxury luggage. She received all expense paid vacations. One particular boyfriend whom she really liked had a father that also seemed to take a liking to Leslie 
and would call the house the couple shared to talk to Leslie and not his son. Leslie told friends that she loved her boyfriend William and could see herself marrying him, but the family and especially the father creeped her out. They eventually broke up. When police questioned other friends and family, they told them that the creepy father had actually called Leslie the day before the murders, and that did not sit well with anyone that knew Leslie. Cell phone records show that he repeatedly tried to reach her. However, investigators flew to South Carolina and interviewed the father and the son, and both were ultimately dismissed as suspects. A very creepy coincidence, it seems. When investigators dove into Adrian and Sonia's life, it was apparent that she was relatively low-key, especially compared to Leslie. Determined and driven, she knew what she wanted. As mentioned before, she cheated death once before and was very focused on her career. She had been hired by the city after she graduated, and shortly after she started dating a man named Christian Lee. The relationship was rocky. They argued often about her wanting a long-term commitment, something he said that he wasn't quite ready for. Adrian had seen Christian that Halloween night. After passing out candy, she headed over to his place and left around 10 p.m. Christian heard that she met a guy at a party recently, and he wasn't very happy about that. They argued, and he was the last person to see her alive. Investigators quickly focused in on him and searched Christian's home, and he also submitted to a DNA test. They found a knife in the corner of Christian's bedroom that they confiscated. They also took his clothes and bedsheets as evidence before ultimately taking Christian down to the station. Police kept drilling him, but Christian adamantly denied his involvement and claimed he never put a hand on a woman. Quote, It disgusts me to even think about it. Despite the detective's persistence, evidence gave them no choice but to clear Christian as a suspect. Police continued their investigation as the days grew into weeks and then eventually months. And life for everyone else had to move on without Adrian or Leslie. Leslie's mother had since moved to Michigan, struggling to understand the death of her sweet daughter. Adrian's best friend Lily went on to marry her longtime boyfriend, Eric Koppel. The couple had already postponed their wedding date because of the death of Adrian. Adrian's memory reminded them that life is too short. Arlene, Adrian's mother, took the place of Adrian at the ceremony where they sang She Will Be Loved by Maroon 5, Adrian's favorite song. Lily and their friends tried to keep their memories of the women alive. They think about this awful incident daily. Lily pleaded with the people when she and Eric were interviewed by 48 hours. Somebody must know something. Somebody would have had to notice their friend acting strange or had bruises. It doesn't seem like someone could walk away from this and just be fine. But nothing. Police interviewed over 1,500 people by the following summer and were completely baffled. They started with the women's inner circles and branched out to co-workers, mere acquaintances and the like. Over 200 men submitted DNA tests, but none of the results matched the killer's blood picked up at the scene. Then, in December of 2005, investigators received a major break. The crime lab returned the results from the cigarette butts, and they were a match to the killer's DNA left in the home. They broke the news to the public and gave the name of the type of cigarette the killer smoked, hoping it might kickstart someone into remembering a person that smokes this type of cigarette. 
and lo and behold, five days later, police would make an arrest, and no one was prepared for who it was. The chief of police received a phone call from the officer, and she was blown away. A person no one expected. A person with close, intimate knowledge of the victim and the case. None other than Adrian's best friend's husband, Eric Koppel. Koppel had written two separate suicide notes to his mother and father and sent them off in mail. One read, I am leaving this life because I know that the consequences of my actions must be faced. And they spelled death. I will not grant the government the satisfaction of watching me die. So I will end my life in a place in a manner of my choosing. I don't call it suicide. I call it justice. Eric might have thought he was taking the easy way out. But family members got to Eric first and convinced him to turn himself in to police. Eric Koppel was a quiet, shy guy that had no criminal record, not even a speeding ticket. Friends noted that he didn't say much, which was fine because his wife Lily was very outgoing. Leslie and Adrian's families were devastated to find out who the killer was. If you remember, Adrian's mother had attended Lily and Eric's wedding. She was especially heartbroken when the news came out. As family and friends began to find out, there were lots of more questions. Was Lily in on this murder? Did she suspect her own husband was involved? If not, how did she not know? And more importantly, how did the police miss Eric Koppel, a man that worked and lived in Napa and had close ties to the victim and smoked cigarettes? Investigators admit that Koppel slipped through the cracks. He was interviewed and scheduled to come in and submit a DNA test, but he never showed and was never followed up with. Busy detectives likely assuming he had nothing to do with the murder and focused harder on other suspects. After Eric was arrested, Lily was called in for more interrogation. Authorities say the best they can tell is that Lily had not been involved or aware of what her husband had done as unbelievable as that may seem. But some people aren't so sure. And what she says in the courtroom at Eric's trial doesn't give families of the victims much peace of mind. It starts with sympathy, but takes a quick turn. Take a listen. I'm Lily Koppel, Eric's wife. Lily was given special permission to speak on her husband's behalf. My heart goes out to both Arlene and Kathy and to the rest of their families and friends. I wish with all my heart these events had been avoided. Her expression of sympathy and regret took a quick turn when she spoke directly to her husband. Eric, there is nothing in this world that you could do to make me love you less. I can say without hesitation that the man who committed this crime is not present in the person or mind of my husband today. We still bear the scars of losing Adrian and Leslie in such a horrifying way. Now we must also endure the pain of watching a much-loved and very admirable man spend the rest of his life behind bars. Next, it was Koppel's turn to address the courtroom. I am a broken man. A man splintered by a penetrating awareness of my own potential for wickedness. While I cannot fathom the full extent of the anguish I have caused, I recognize that my sinful deeds 
Heaven inflicted. Terrific agony on a great number of people. The words evade me to articulate the depths of my sorrow. As far as motive, Koppel never really gave one. He admitted that he got really drunk that Halloween night, and Lily refused to stay with him. He remembered he got a knife and he went into the girl's house. He remembered smoking the cigarettes and climbing through the window, but he doesn't recall what happened next. He claims his eyes were closed, but he knew he was responsible for their deaths. When asked about his bloody clothes, he said he threw them in a fire pit in his yard when he got home. As for the knife, again, he doesn't remember. Some theories are that Koppel was jealous of Lily's relationship with Adrian, that he wanted Lily all to himself. He felt that she might be slipping away. Others think that he got so mad at Lily on Halloween night that she wouldn't stay with him that he decided to hurt one of the most important people to her. We may never know the truth. He offered no motive or insight to Leslie's murder. To spare the families more trauma, the DA and Koppel struck a deal. He would avoid the death penalty for a guilty plea to two counts of first-degree murder and be sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Lily Koppel has moved away and tried to start over, but strangely she has kept Eric Koppel's last name. As for the family and friends, they have chosen to forget Eric Koppel and remember the lives of Leslie and Adrian. Eric Koppel has forfeited all rights of appeal or clemency. He will spend the entirety of his life in prison. The reward money collected to find the killer has been donated to Adrian's and Leslie's favorite charities, both of which I will link in the description below. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts in the comments, specifically about what you all think his true motive might have been. A man that has never been in trouble commits a double murder seemingly out of the blue. I also find it strange that his wife Lily refused to admonish him and stood defiantly by his side. Do we think she knew about this? How could she not have known? How could Eric have Adrian's mother at his wedding knowing he killed his daughter? Was Leslie collateral damage? Let me know what you think and as always like and subscribe and share with a friend. Take care and I'll see you in the next one.